Um, hello and welcome to Politics Relax podcast. We're here with a very exciting guest. Monica Harding is here. Um, she fought against Dominic Raab in Eastern Walton uh, for the Liberal Democrats. Um, and it was a, such a remarkable achievement uh, what you did um, because you brought the, um, you um, increased the party share by a 13%, which is just incredible. Like, especially against such a high ranking government official, it's just like unheard of. So how did you do it? That's a very kind introduction. Thank you very much. Um, we actually achieved the largest swing in the country, um, which was, uh, it was 18.5%. And on those figures, um, you know, on 27,000 votes, uh, more than that, you would be uh, expected to actually win that seat and, and be standing for parliament. Um, uh, we actually also did something that I was very proud of, which is what we got turnout to 80% of the electorate so um that and that was always my mission from the very beginning was i wanted to other uh, local mp to become accountable uh, to the electorate and i think we achieved that by turning what was one of the safest conservative seats in the country into what is now a marginal seat so so it was great and and all credit to everybody who fought in that campaign so i was the figurehead but there were a huge amount of activists um out and about on the doorsteps we had about a thousand volunteers all together um, how did we do it? We created a moderate coalition, that's what I would say, and we tapped into uh, the public mood. So um, I felt, and, and, and this is a story I told again and again on the election uh, trail, was I, I got into politics just a year before the general election because uh, I was sick of shouting at the TV and I wanted to do something about it. And uh, what I found is that that chapter called with many of the constituents in Isha Walton who didn't feel that their MP Dominic Raab um, represented them or their interests. And a lot of that hung on to the Brexit vote, the referendum, uh, as this was a Remain constituency. And of course, Raab was quite a hardline Brexiteer. So it was tapping into a moment. It was fantastic organization. Um, we had a fantastic you know, campaign full of energy. Um, and uh, we used social media for the first time, which you know, the Liberal Democrats in the past have not used so much. And um, it was a great positive campaign. So yeah, really proud of what we did. And obviously, Eastern Walton as a constituency, 58% uh, of the constituency voted for Remain. And that was clearly a big part of why you managed to achieve such a remarkable feat. But if you had got all of Labour's votes in our constituency, you'd have beaten Dominic Raab by 95 votes. So you would be the MP now. Do you think that uh, if, the, if the Liberal Democrats had not entered a coalition with the Conservatives back in 2010, do you think that you would have got more of those votes and perhaps be in Westminster now? Well, I mean, that's a great question, actually, and not one that I had ever considered, actually, on the, on the campaign trail. Um, look, I, I don't think that would have made any difference because I think every party has a core tribal vote. Um, and the fact that we managed to get that Labour vote down to 2,000 from what was 13,000, you know, just two years before that is a pretty incredible achievement. Um, I would say, I mean, you, you, you mentioned Brexit, of course, it was a massive part of the campaign. But what I, you know, I said at the beginning was that we um, created a moderate coalition. So what Dominic Rabret presented was a very uh, right wing part of the Conservative Party and what the Conservative Party are now are not the one nation Conservatives that we have been used to over decades. It's a very new party. 
And that was shown by Ian Taylor, who was the previous um, MP for Asian Morton, who came out and endorsed me against Dominic Raab. Now, I think the reaction against Dominic Raab was because he was so extreme of that end. So many Labour voters uh, wanted to stop him. And because we were the most viable opposition to uh, Dominic Raab, we uh, managed to get their votes. So it was a point, and again, it was something I was very proud of, where people put their kind of usual tribal uh, you know, instincts aside and, and went for the moderate candidate most likely to win. I would also say um, that I don't think the political tribes that we're used to in this country actually reflect the electorate. I think most people don't want to pigeonhole themselves in one party or another and say, I am a Lib Dem, I am a Labour person, I am a Conservative party. It's quite unusual. And, and that is why party membership is so small. So I would uh, favour a realignment of all politics um, away from the tribes we've got at the moment, because I don't think they have the answers. I would also say the reason why we lost was because of Jeremy Corbyn. Uh, you tend to find that Liberal Democrats do uh, most well when there is a moderate uh, kind of centre, centrist uh, Labour leader. What we found is that the electorate were given an almost impossible choice between two men that they didn't like. They didn't like Boris Johnson and they didn't like Jeremy Corbyn, but they saw Boris Johnson as actually the lesser of two evils. So we had... Uh, people um, in the last couple of days that had, you know, had, had said that they would vote Lib Dem, who, who then said, you know, I'm so sorry, I cannot let Jeremy Corbyn in. And, and so what you find there is there's a clash of, um, of our kind of democratic um, uh, uh, kind of procedures here is that we vote for our local MP, but actually many people are persuaded by who they want to lead the country. And so uh, while I think we did all we can to, and, and we did very well in, in saying that I would be a good constituency MP and probably a favoured one, people were very concerned that it would let Jeremy Corbyn in. Yeah, um, I just th think like in terms of a national, like if we um, zoom out of your constituency and look at a national level, the Lib Dems, like I think you'll even admit that they didn't do as well as they were polling to do. Um, do you not think that um, what do you think went wrong? Because you had Jeremy Corbyn, who a lot of people thought was too left-wing, and Boris Johnson, who thought was too right-wing. Right so surely that creates a great opportunity for the Lib Dems alongside Brexit, when you have 49% of the um, like electorate. What, what went wrong, do you think? Well, I mean, you're absolutely right. It was a massive opportunity, and I don't think the Lib Dems played it well. I think our, uh, uh, our local campaign here in the constituency was fantastic but I think uh, nationally uh, they chose their kind of positioning early on um, and uh, they didn't pivot when it was clear that things weren't working they didn't as other parties had pivot away from that and do something different so I think basically that was the major failure of the, the campaign and I, I you know I think people retreat it always happens in elections people retreat back to the comfortable you know two party system and, and the smaller parties, will, that will always be detrimental to, to two-party systems, which is why I favour PR and not first-past-the-post, because I think it's terribly unfair that, you know, I think it was um, 
52% of um, those votes cast in the election were for pro-Remain parties, for example, but yet we got the very hard Brexit. So, so I think actually a parliament that was made up of, of, of smaller parties would be much more representative of uh, the electorate than we are now. So to, to talk about election night for a second, because I remember staying up um, all night on election night to, um, <laughs> to watch the Eastern Walton results, uh, and, and I remember after Dominic Raab got elected that, of course, a much slimmer uh, margin than previously, he branded your campaign as a very dirty campaign. Do you believe your campaign always acted in good faith? My, our campaign was very clean and it was very unfortunate. I To me, that was the lowest part of the campaign was what Dominic Raab said after he accepted, you know, his victory. It was entirely ungracious. It was unseemly for... Um, a cabinet minister and a foreign secretary to act like that, in my opinion. Um, he always shouted, given that the victory was so good, his victory was so close, you know, 2%, and that, um, you know, 27 odd thousand people had voted against him, to shout from the podium, get Brexit done, was a very, very odd position, and as I say, unseemly from uh, a cabinet minister and certainly for a constituency MP who is meant to represent us all, not just those who voted for him. Our campaign was not dirty. Uh, there was a campaign in the constituency that was dirty. It had nothing to do with us. It was uh, obviously against Dominic Rubb and trying to get him out. But unfortunately, there were rumours put around by the Conservative side that that was all our doing. It had nothing to do with us at all. I would urge you, if you think our campaign was dirty, to show me anything, anything that the Liberal Democrats have put out on social media, in what I said, you know, on public platforms or in any hustings that was, as he called it, dirty or below the belt. It was not true. And unfortunate. So, yeah, but... One thing that I've picked up on is your campaign was accused of using misleading data in election leaflets and social media posts. Surrey Live reported reported that, Surrey Live reported that you used national projection data from the website Flavable, not a member of the British Polling Council, and the company have said that your use of their projections had been misinterpreted and mislabeled for political advantage. Do, do you want uh, to what, give what me the What would date? be your response to that? Okay, first of all, have you got the date of that? That's that's me quoting from. A yeah, I know it is. Have you got the date of it? I want you. I want to know from you what date you've got on that. I, I can find out the date for you. I can tell you the date. It was August 2019. It wasn't in the general election campaign, and I can tell you exactly what that was. I retweeted a flavable poll which suggested that the interpretation of real data was that we would win in Eastern Walton. Flavable then replied and said, this is, as you, as you said, rightly, that it's not, you know, an exact prediction. It is a prediction. It's not exact data. And you might want to look at the tweet. I then apologised and said, you are right. That is not okay. actual data. That is a prediction. As, that as was said. in August. And I, yeah. I can guarantee there is nothing else. Good. OK, well, I just wanted your response on that, because obviously it was it was a reported article. Um, yep. that, that did gain traction. So I think it's important that you get to have your say on that article, even if it even if it was from a date prior to the general election campaign started. So I, I just wanted to say, I mean, oh, good. I it's, it, I it's, it's great that you, you did have the choice to do that. It's great that you did. And, and you know, it, 
fantastic because it's true kind of journalism to actually do that but as i said that was from august i apologized immediately that night that that went out and i can't i, I you know i urge you to find any other evidence of the so-called dirty campaign well yeah and i think that's important because i remember watching you um in the party com in your party conference speech in 2019 you stood up and one of your you said one of your main goals was to restore honesty um and faith in politicians so i do think it's i do th I, I do actually think it's a good thing that you will apologized uh, for for that because clearly um the company that produced those polling results believed that you were misusing it and if if you were not if it was not your intention i do think it's a really important thing that politicians do start to have the ability to apologize a bit more so yeah i think that's it i think that's a good thing thank you um, yeah, I just want to um, ask, like, we ask all our guests this, um, if you could implement one piece of policy or piece of legislation, what would it be? Ah, oh, that's a really good one. I mean, I, I would like to see proportional representation. Uh, I, as I said before, I think it's a really important thing um, uh, uh, for our democracy going forward. I think, as I said, the tribes don't work anymore. I think the country is very divided at the moment, and um, I would just like uh, uh, people going to the polls to be able to feel that they are represented. Um, you know, I, I and then this is when I talked about being, you know, holding uh, a local MP to account. I, I really don't like safe seats. <laughs> I just don't think they serve the electorate very well at all. And again, it doesn't matter what side you're on actually you know even if you're on the incumbent side to have them accountable and answerable to the electorate is um is a very good thing and um and as i said i i, I think we achieved that but what one of the things that i was most proud of was that people said to me you know at least at last i feel that my voice has been heard you know you may not have won but people know that there is very strong opposition to you know government policies in this constituency and i think it's really important for all of us is that we feel that our voices are heard at the ballot box yeah that is a quite important thing like i agree with the safe seats thing i think it's always good to have like a, 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 a feisty i guess you could say election night but something that that's just come up this week actually um obviously i, I believe that you're a vice chair at a local primary school um, That's right. So this may be close to you. Uh, tuition fees frozen at 9250 for the year, and they said they wanted more funding on uh, courses that are of importance to the nation, like such as STEM subjects, but it would also mean cuts to certain subjects such as media studies. So while trying to balance an affordable tuition fee and keeping certain areas funded well, how would you have you approached this differently, let's say? <laughs> Very good. That's a very good question. You're you're talking about specifically um, university courses, yeah, and that they, there's there should be more funding for STEM courses rather than yeah, things like media studies. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I I think that my feeling on tuition fees is that there needs to be some kind of cross party, as on adult social care, there needs to be some cross party consensus on how we go forward on this. Clearly, you know, I wasn't a fan of tuition fees when they were introduced. Um, <laughs> I certainly didn't support the coalition stance on on uh, on tuition fees. Um, having said that, now I think we're in a position where universities can't can't keep you know their um, profile and their brilliance, actually, uh, Bridget, without some kind of support 
you know, from, from uh, student fees. So, but I would like to see some kind of cross-party commission that looks at this. Um, with putting politics aside, you know, it's the same thing as the adult social care problem we've had. It's just been pushed into the long grass because some of these subjects are so political and so hard to, um, to solve, you end up doing nothing about them at all. So, so my proposal would be to go forward, you know, with all parties talking about each other and come to some kind of sensible uh, solution on how we um, fund our universities going forward. Yeah, I mean, clearly tuition fees and education is one of the issues that Liberal Democrat voters and supporters care the most about. Uh, and another one of those is climate change. Mm. Now, do you believe that uh, in your manifesto of 2019, your pledges on climate change went far enough because I know some environmentalists who think that a 2045 um, zero emission target would not be perhaps good enough, such as Felix. And um, do, do you believe that therefore you could have been more ambitious and that you would have won more young people over by being a bit more ambitious with those climate targets? I, I you know, again it's a fantastic question and Felix I'm really pleased that you know you're on that page and I, I actually think it's your generation that you know got most to lose from this but also are the most articulate at this and and it's forcing you know my age group and other generations to look at this very very closely and I felt tremendously responsible I mean that's one of the you know the what I talked about in my campaign a lot is that I felt responsible for your age group in what we were leading you into or not into um so could we have gone f further? Of course we could have gone further, but I think we had to kind of strike the balance between what was practical and pragmatic and, um, you know, getting people who were still sceptics, you know, climate sceptics at that, at that point over the line. I think uh, it became slightly ridiculous over the, the course of the campaign where each party was pledging to plant more and more and more trees without a, um, a kind of solid plan behind it. And it became almost comical in that and therefore negated what the real kind of um, issues were at stake. But we had a very active, you know, the Green Lib Dems are very active and very good. Um, a lot of their work was um, uh, supported um, or I wouldn't say endorsed because they don't do, do that, but was supported by a lot of the environmental uh, lobby groups. And it certainly went further, we felt, than um, most of the other parties in, in what it pledged for climate change. So I, I was really pleased with that manifesto and I stood by that manifesto. It was one of the things that I was raised, you know, as a, as a parliamentary candidate, you will have um, uh, uh, found this out in other people that you interview, but as a parliamentary candidate, you're not going to ever agree with 100% of, you know, your party's manifesto. It just wouldn't be human to do so. But that was something that I stood behind. I thought it was very, very strong. And um, the Green Party stood aside for us here in, in Eastern Water, and I, I don't think they would have had they not supported, you know, our manifesto. Yeah. Um just going back onto kind of like the cuts um, and reversing them on both the tuition fees and on police cuts, you said you wanted to reverse them, but this is reversing like a Lib Dem, like Lib Dem policy from, to, from the coalition. Um, do you think um, that you should support something uh, just even like 10 years after the Lib Dems implemented it? I, I don't think you should support something that you don't believe in as a candidate. I, I you know, I, but, and this is when I talk about honesty and decency in, in politics, I think it's really important that you, you can, can sometimes break with the party and just say, you know, this is not something that I, um, you know, you, I can endorse. 
um, on tuition fees. As I said, I, you know, I, I wasn't a member of the Liberal Democrats at the time. Uh, I, I came to the Liberal Democrats actually because of Brexit, um, because for me it was a party that was so uh, close to what I felt on the whole Brexit uh, debate. So, so no, I don't think. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a very good point, I, and and it goes back to my point on on parties being tribal. I don't think it serves um, the electorate's interest for us to cling on to an ideology which may have had its day. Um, and that you can, you know, move on and pivot on and, and also candidates um, have a responsibility to do that for their constituents. Yeah, continuing to talk about the policies from your manifesto of 2019, do you think that your policy on Brexit went too far? Because obviously the original Joe Swinson uh, policy was that she wanted a second referendum and to most people that seems a much more sensible idea than stopping Brexit and revoking Article 50 altogether. Do you believe that you and candidates across this country lost votes because of that policy change? Yeah, I mean, there was, um, the, the short answer is yes, I do think we lost votes because of that. Um, the, the, the caveat to that is that actually the policy was, should we be elected as a majority then we would revoke Brexit because that would be a democratic mandate from the electorate. And that was the bit that got missed in a lot of the reporting. It became, you know, you are the party that will revoke Brexit without that caveat that it would only be if we formed a majority government. And of course, the chances of us doing that at any point during the election campaign were very, very slim. So, so it became a bit of a red herring, but there is no doubt that the way it was reported uh, did lose its votes. And actually, in my opinion, it was a clumsy policy because if you're explaining it, you've lost it. I mean, there's a famous kind of phrase, isn't it? If you've got to explain something, then you've lost it. So the very fact that we were explaining on the doorstep that it had a caveat to it meant that, you know, we, we had kind of lost the argument. So, yes, I, I you know, th and there was a very vigorous debate within the party about whether that should go ahead or not. Um, my preference was always for a second referendum. Yeah, I mean, just kind of like following up on that, if you had got in with Labour um, and you formed um, maybe a coalition of sorts to stop Brexit, would you have carried on with the uh, stop Brexit me message or would you have gone for a second referendum instead? And personally, I would have gone for the second referendum. And, and I regret very much that the, um, the kind of political machinations were such that when we were very close to a second referendum, uh, you know, the, the general election kind of took that away. Um, so yes, I would have favoured a second referendum. But my position on, on Brexit was very, very clear. I didn't want it from a personal point of view for a whole myriad of reasons. But um, it was, you know, the, the, the country voted for Brexit. What wasn't clear was the form of Brexit it wanted, whether that was a close relationship, a very close relationship with the Europe, European Union or something that we've got now, which is a complete divorce and a very, very hard Brexit. And that was the bit, I think, that was clumsy in the whole referendum and was never made clear to the public. And therefore, it needed some, uh, it, it needed to be revisited. And so that was my my thinking on the whole Brexit campaign. But yes, as I would have pushed for a second referendum. Uh, yeah, um, just going back to my point earlier that I made about schools, um, like I did say you are a vice chair at a school and at the time of recording, uh, Boris Johnson did announce a school return on the 8th of March at least. And 
so this must be an issue like that's somewhat close to your heart as well. You also have children that are probably affected by this. So do you agree or disagree with this decision? And do you think it's uh, an achievable target to get students back to school then? I mean, it, it is a really very, very difficult time for anybody that has children, but certainly more importantly for kids that are, are not at school at the moment, because it's, you know, it's it's so hard. And I, I think obviously the lack of education is, is you know, the biggest factor but having said that I think what's become clear about schools during the pandemic is that they are also so important for uh, children to and, and young people to meet each other and socialize and so your emotional growth is so important you know by being at school and also um, parents can't work <laughs> with their children out of school so we need to keep the economy going so so I think the what one of the you know Something that one of the positives that will come out of this pandemic, I think, is that teachers' place in society will be elevated as a result because we will understand what an important job they do uh, for the whole community and what they give uh, children. My regret um, is that we've got to this situation. Um, it didn't need to be this way. I think there have been massive mistakes that the government have made during the pandemic. Um, they could have had a circuit breaker back in September and the schools wanted that to happen. Certainly the schools that I've been associated with and I'm associated with many because my children are at them as well. We've got four children at four different schools. Uh, the teachers were desperate for the circuit breaker because they could see the infection rates were rising um, in the classrooms. And I remember having conversations where we said, this is really odd, you know, that the figures don't seem to say that this, the, the, you know, that it's spreading so rapidly, but why are we having so many people that are going off sick? Yeah. And so there was that kind of timeline before it caught up. So there could have been a circuit breaker in September. It could have happened over half term for two weeks when the schools were closed anyway. And then of course it happened too late in December again, at the beginning of December, we were seeing this infection rate go up and the schools didn't close. So I, I th think the fact that this is such a long lockdown now is because of mistakes made in the past. One thing that I think is unforgivable of the government is that the um, teachers, and I know this at secondary schools and primary schools, spent pretty much the whole of their Christmas break preparing for test and trace, which was meant to happen, that you know the testing was announced the first day of the Christmas holidays, so the, the teachers spent the entire two weeks preparing for this. Governors and teachers spent the whole of the two weeks working out how they could keep children safe in school with the infection rates so high. We were all prepared to open schools again, and then some schools in Surrey opened for one day and then closed. But there was no need for that. It was known how virulent this virus was going to be. You know, that the, the was there there was no need to put teachers through that and I think that is a shame I think it is too much for the teachers to bear they were put into disarray um, and then there was some you know the, the other thing is that the teachers are only finding this out on the news along all of us we all find out at the same time you know that the schools are going to close the next day and if you think about the management and organization that needs to go into place to manage that and then the next set of guidelines that came out from the government were how many children were therefore allowed into school during lockdown because they may be vulnerable. But it, to such an extent that those children that couldn't find a safe space in their house to learn were allowed into school. So in some instances, you had schools that were taking 80 percent of their of their children. So that's not a lockdown. 
<laughs> that's yeah. almost the same as what you've got, you know, in normal time. Now others, you know, are taking 30%, 50%, but it wasn't clear for a very long time. So I think what you'll find now is that teachers are exhausted. Um, a lot of our key workers are exhausted, but since we're talking about education, teachers are absolutely exhausted and at the end of their tether because of bad, terrible mistakes uh, mm. by the government, um, not least in education. And, and I think the whole education management of the pandemic have been an absolute catastrophe from this, but also to the, you know, the, the, the handling of the A-levels and GCSEs last year and again this year, because it was clear to all of us in September that GCSEs and A-levels were unlikely to go ahead this year, but the government mm -hmm. refused to yeah, so <laughs> admit that, obviously... but also on top of that, didn't have a plan B. Mm. So clearly education definitely comes off, off as one, uh, one of the areas which is closest to your heart, which is admirable, definitely from the point of view of ours as, as school children, it's obviously one of the things we care the most about. Now, um, obviously, on the campaign trail, we've just got a couple more questions for you. Um, you must have come across Dominic Raab uh, a few times throughout the campaign. He's a really senior government politician. What were your impressions of him? Uh, I, I had many hustings with Dominic Raab, actually. We, um, I, I'm not sure how many there were, maybe five or six hustings. And um, and it was very welcome, actually, that he turned up because the uh, the uh, uh, election before that, he didn't turn up to many of the hustings. So that was very welcome. Um, I, I mean, you know, all, we treated each other civilly and with respect. Um, I think what we have to understand in, um, in politics is that people who are in politics are trying to do their best for the country. Uh, and uh, whatever platform you stand on and whether your politics are diametrically opposed or on issues you're diametrically opposed, all of us are there because we're trying to make things better. So I think that's how MPs should treat each other and candidate. <laughs> Just a final question here. Um, will you run in uh, the next election if it comes in uh, 2024 or before that even? Uh, and how will you um, pull off the same thing you did in 2019 without Brexit being at the front of the political sphere? Well, uh, first of all, I don't know whether I'll run again at the moment. I haven't decided that yet. Um, it'd be very interesting to see when the election is. I suspect it will be before 2024, actually. I suspect they'll go early to the polls in, in 2023. Um, I think uh, Brexit was a huge crisis and obviously divided a lot of people, but the crisis is that we have in front of us at the moment bigger than that. Um, and so the response or how the country finds itself after COVID, and I hope there is an after COVID, um, is going to be a very interesting time. And as I said, I don't think people divide into the tribes that they did. I think um, the Conservative government is going to have a very, very hard time fulfilling its pledges uh, to the Red Wall and keeping places like Isha and Walton on side. Um, there is a big problem about money coming up because I don't quite know how you're going to fulfill those pledges without rising taxes and they're always very unpopular. Um, and of course you've got the climate emergency. Um, Brexit still has to play out and clearly the kind of argument is over but there is still a lot of pain to come from Brexit. Um, so there are all kinds of issues and I think it would be a fool for any of us to predict how this is going to play out politically and which uh, parties are going to be in ascendance 
you know, in the next three or four years. So um, we'll have to see what the, what bring what you know the time brings us. But what I would say is that that it's very important that we are all we all remain involved and kind of democratically involved. It is great to see you guys doing what you're doing at the moment. And um, one of the joys for me at the election was getting so many young people involved in my campaign. And I think your voice is so important because. And um, you will be inheriting, you know, the effects of climate change, um, the effects of our relationship with Europe and, and, and the rest of the world and how that pans out. And of course, a massive debt after COVID. So, you know, how the money we have is spent and how we raise it is are going to be issues that you guys are going to be grappling with as well. So I just think it's really important that we all remain involved and on that page and informed, actually. Um, yeah. Yeah, such a huge thank you um, for giving up your time uh, today. Um, yeah, thank you to Tommy and uh, Cameron as well uh, for helping to interview. Um, and in two weeks time, we'll be interviewing your colleague, Sarah Olney. Uh, so make sure you look out for that and subscribe. Uh, but just again, thank you very much and thank you for listening. <laughs>